Welcome to the Kyperian Commentary Podcast. This is episode 115, and today we're talking to Dr. Sam Andriatis, uh, who's a, a PCA pastor in Pennsylvania. He recently wrote a book called Across the Kitchen Table, which is about how to talk uh, to your children, to your relatives, uh, to your friends about transgender issues. Uh, it's a big topic in the church today, something that uh, pastors and lay people really need to be preparing to talk more about. Uh, so, Sam, thank you for being here and joining us for the podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure, Rick. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And, you know, Abraham Kuyper is one of my top heroes. So I am honored to be on a podcast that bears his name uh, and I guess explores his teaching or his tradition, right? Yeah, I mean, the idea here is to think about how Christ's lordship applies to every single area of human life. And sexuality right now in our culture is is reigning supreme, right? I mean, it's it's um, for many people, uh, for many people, it's the closest they're ever going to get to a religion for uh, mm, atheists. True, and it yeah. seems like, you know, this is uh, so close to how people identify themselves and think of themselves in our culture today. Um, and Christ is Lord over that as well. So, yes, he is. I, you know, one time the NYU law school put on a debate by two leading statesmen of the Netherlands. They were coming on, there was a panel and they allowed questions from the audience and they were discussing the problems of immigration in Europe and this political difficulties that uh, the Netherlands were, were facing uh, in, in having you know people come on and, and having a mix of Muslims and a largely white population and how they're dealing with that. And so they had questions from the audience. I made my way to the front to the microphone and I said, you know, I don't know if you have all thought about this, but one of your prime ministers from 100 years ago actually addressed these issues of religious pluralism. His name was Abraham Kuyper. And have you ever considered going to his council for this? And uh, people laughed. Uh, <laughs> to me. And the, the conservative guy on the panel said, yeah, yeah, I know we know him, but people don't like to listen to him. Wow. And I said, that that's a shame. That's a shame. One of your, you know, prime ministers, one of the statesmen of the country. And uh, he was really trying to address increasing religious pluralism in his time. So he had something to say to that. But um, not that they're listening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, that sounds like a good topic for another episode sometime to talk about, um, because I've read I've read some of Kuiper's theological writings. I read his, of course, lectures on Calvinism. I haven't read him talking about religious pluralism, so I'm not as deeply read in Kuiper uh, as maybe I ought to be. Uh, great um, man. Yeah, let's shift in. Let's talk about your book a little bit. Um, you know, the 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 premise of your book is how to deal with transgender issues on a personal level. I think as conservative Christians, we know what we're supposed to think about it, uh, how biblically to to consider the question of transgenderism, but then how does it actually translate into uh, a relative, a friend, a loved one, someone I know comes to me and says, I'm transgender. All right, starting there, what do you do? And at the beginning of your book, one thing I, I really liked was you started by saying that when someone says, I'm transgender, uh, there are a number of, of different things that that could mean. Uh, so my first question for you would be, uh, what can it mean when someone says that uh, I'm transgender? Right. Yeah. Well, what I do is make a little flow chart in the book, because um, just in, in dealing with this and, and really, um, really trying to be available to the Lord 
in helping address the gender strugglers for about 20 years, what I've found is they could uh, they could be in different boxes. And the first thing, of course, what, what I make a point of in the book is the first response is very important. And that response needs to be acceptance and love. When our teen or, or loved one expresses something like this to us, we might tend to freak out or uh, we might tend to, you know, just uh, acclimate. But what we need to do is express commitment to the relationship. And that's first and foremost. But uh, once we do that, we're sure that uh, that we're on we're on good ground there. Then uh, we need to explore what they might be saying when they mean that, because they might be um, I, I have one box that I say is the activists box box where um you know they're not maybe struggling so much with their bodies as they are um, believing that that um, they should be standing against something that's oppressive uh that the gender binary that is god creating us as male or female is somehow oppressed they they need to stand up for their friends or their or you know their particular ones who you know don't like the stereotypes or or, or things like that and that's a very different situation from someone who's really um, experiencing um, an alienation from their body. Uh, and that's something that is is what we would call gender dysphoria. It's uh, something that is present in all of us, but it's exacerbated by certain earlier experiences in some people. And that also is different from the just um, visceral desire of uh, teenagers to fit in with their friends, you know, in that vulnerable time of life, they, you know, what are what their companions think looms very large, and so that there's another box that's sort of just just wanting to not miss out, wanting to be cool. If it's become fashionable in your neighborhood to become trans, then you know, or to adopt a different uh, gender identity, then you might not want to miss out. Um, and this is what's behind what's sometimes called rapid onset gender mm -hmm. dysphoria, uh, which really isn't gender dysphoria at all. It's something that every, every parent of a teenage girl understands, which is right. there's uh, empathy going on there and, and a desire to, to just identify with one's friends. So uh, you know, there, there are a few other different categories um, uh, for the sake of completeness that I put in the book, but uh, th those are the main ones that we could yeah. be dealing with. And, and that's what we want to be aware of as we're moving forward and trying to help these people, help these folks. I thought, I thought those categories were interesting. It, it made me think a little bit of um, eating disorders among teenage girls, how some are more socially contagious than others. Um, you know, and others are a result of body dysmorphia, where you look at your body, you see the wrong thing, you feel like you're you're wrong, and that connection uh, really uh, stood out to me that that those two things are going on. There's sort of the social pressure in certain situations, but then there are true cases where people have gender dysphoria, uh, this feeling of alienation. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about? how this issue became important to you because i know it's been for a while you've you've got a blog affirming gender and you wrote a book about the importance of gender in relationships um how did this get started and, and when did i, I recall you read i did and it was a really good book <laughs> i really enjoyed it thank you that's very kind mm. um yes yeah, well 
you know, when I took on a, uh, the pastorate of uh, the village church in Greenwich Village, New York City, about 20 years ago, this I was immediately confronted with what I called the gender strugglers. Um, and I, I took one of my elders, Elliot, um, he was from Texas, and uh, I said, hey, why don't you come with me? I want you to meet me on this corner uh, at midnight. Uh, it was Saturday night. He said, okay, very, very trusting guy. <laughs> and so we met on the street corner and I took him to a, a transvestite party, which is what they used to be called in those days. And uh, folks were, you know, in various states of cross-dressing and we just talked to them there about their experiences, uh, the alienation that they felt with their bodies and what, what was behind, what propelled them to be um, assuming the identity, even if, if just uh, at a party, assuming the identity of the complementary gender. And I learned a lot that night. We, we, were, we had a lot of good discussions and uh, I saw that night where American culture was going and I determined then that I was going to make myself uh, available to help these uh, gender strugglers with the redemptive power of Jesus Christ. And uh, that, that's what originally started me off um, in this particular area of, uh, of address. So you've, you've talked to a lot of people who have struggled with gender issues in the past. Um, where does it come from? What, what causes trans? Well, um, so there's two questions in that question. Do you mean what causes trans or what causes gender dysphoria? I think I mean gender dysphoria. What causes gender uh, dysphoria sure. in a in a person? And you, you sure. even said a few minutes ago that you think everybody has that to some extent. Maybe you could explain that a little bit as well. Yes, thank you. Yeah, it's it's the question, right? I, and in the book, I make the case that the shame of our bodies is deeply ingrained in us from the fall. Uh, we all suffer from it. Uh, to one degree or another and it's right there in the initial uh, explanation of the fall in uh, genesis 3. but for some of us it becomes overwhelming um, for some experiences of life that exasper exacerbate this this deeply ingrained shame of body um, it, it almost always arises from earlier trauma um, it could be childhood sexual abuse, but there are other kinds of trauma as well. We call them adverse children experiences or ACEs, um, which can cause uh, this uh, really deeply felt trauma. Um, and includes uh, physical abuse or sometimes a parent's divorce, sometimes drug addiction, incarceration, the death of a family member. Uh, these kinds of things can really uh, not with everybody, but with some people have a, have a lasting effect that if, if somebody really hates their body, there's a reason that they want to be separate from it in some way. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. And, and we all kind of hate our bodies during puberty anyway. Right. So you've got people who are naturally, we, we have shame about our bodies because of the fall. Um, we all go through this experience of, um, puberty and feeling like, oh, what's happening to me? This is weird. Um, I didn't ask for this. Uh, but then if you add to that, maybe uh, traumatic experiences or other things, other factors, uh, it could take you down that different path, basically is what you're saying, right? 
Yeah, and adolescence uh, is is a place where you're particularly uh, vulnerable to suggestion that your body is the problem. Uh, you know, there were just recently in the New York Times had an article where they were uh, they were reporting on an article of the Journal of of the American Medical Association, who was actually coming forward. There aren't a lot of studies like this, but they were trying to determine how many gender mm. surgeries are going on. Mm. And they found from 2016 to 2019, uh, the number tripled. And the numbers they were citing, like it was going from 4,500 to 13,000 um, per year, those are definitely undercounted because of the way that doctors can um, have gender operations without calling them that uh, be under some other rubric. So uh, it, it's, it's, it's really tens of thousands of these that are going on. And a lot of them are among teens. A lot of them uh, are, are being done by teenagers. And uh, you know, it, your, your body is changing, right? There are a lot of reasons why you might uh, be dis uh, have discomfort with your body and and um, so especially uh, young women are particularly vulnerable to the suggestion that boy if I had a different body I might be empowered to be a, a, a person or, or protected or something so there's a big sort of social cultural aspect to that of your you know you're hearing this message that if you're feeling uncomfortable with your body you're probably transgender and also it's it's sort of a, a celebrated category. So you could become a special person if you uh, if you were transgender. So that all factors into it as well. Yeah. And, you know, there are people who on, are on the Internet who um, are who, who specialize in giving you a sense of belonging. Um, you know, if you're having struggles at home, you might uh, have, be having difficulties there. Look, here's a friend. Here's a group of friends, and uh, so long as you come along with this particular way of looking at yourself, they're your best buddies. But it's very ephemeral. It, it, it appears like there's a, a family or a friendship, but it, it really isn't there. And uh, unfortunately, um, a lot of people are 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 kind of guided away in that in that in that way. Um, one thing, you know, if you're, if you're confronted with someone who says, you know, I feel like a, a girl trapped in a boy's body, or I feel like a boy trapped in a girl's body, and that's, um, what they're telling you they're experiencing. Um, you talk a bit in the book about the difference between desires, temptations, uh, sin, and I think, um, the morality of desire in general. I remember one line that stood out to me was, um... Oh, I wish I could remember exactly how you put it, but it stood out at the time. It was um, you, you said the the phrase living into wicked desires, I think, or, or something along those lines. Um, I could probably find it uh, somewhere. Um, uniting oneself to a wicked desire was your word. Uh, how how do you parse out whether. um uh, you know, sometimes we think, well, you, you feel transgender, that's, you're, you're sinning, obviously, if you feel that gender dysphoria. Uh, but you talk about the morality of desires a little bit. Uh, could you talk about that here and just kind of give us a picture for, for where you're coming from there? Sure, yeah. Not a very precise question, but 
<laughs> no, I know what you're. I know what you're getting at. Well, th this is important. This is one of the pieces of the puzzle. Mm. You know, the book is arranged as these different puzzle pieces, and I'm not going to answer everything about your your particular family situation, but I'm going to give you the pieces that allow you to see the framework uh, for in which you can explore this with uh, your loved one. And one of the big pieces is to clarify the morality of desires, because every every desire is moral. Uh, it leads us towards covenant faithfulness or away from it. And, and I make a comparison of desires with vectors. If you remember from high school physics, right, a vector has two things, magnitude and direction. And if you're on a test and you just say the magnitude of a vector, you're like, nope, you get marked wrong. Uh, because you, they always have magnitude and direction. And desires are just so. They might be big, they might be small desires, but they also always have a direction to them. And some of the some of the changes in vocabulary to describe this experience of moving from uh, uh, earlier earlier denotations to gender dysphoria, um, I, gender identity disorder was earlier one. Before that, it was perversity. And, and some of that has been good in that it's allowed people to talk more about their feelings without condemnation. But in the process, there has also been a loss of the morality of these desires and where they're taking us. So I, I try to help us tease that out so people aren't condemned if they have these desires. If we have a desire, you know, um, it's telling us something about ourselves, but it's not necessarily sinful. Um, it's, but we have to look at the direction of the desires, uh, and, it, and it really helps to know that. And then we can address whether they're leading us in the way that we should go or not. So you're not sinning because of the desire, but the desire is leading you in a sinful direction if you follow it or unite yourself to it, I think, is the way you talked about it. Right, but, but not, um, not necessarily sinful. If, you have, if you're under stress and you desire relief, that's not a sinful desire, you know, mm -hmm. and so we, we need to take out that some of some of the desires that are involved in this experience aren't sinful. Uh, it's just the ones that take us away from what, what God says is true about us. Uh, and that that we need to be careful to parse out. Yeah. So, I mean, you're talking also a little bit about the, the history of psychology the, the history of these diagnoses from perversity to it's a disorder to now it's um either an orientation or it's you know there, there's no condemnation whatsoever uh, what things can we learn uh from the history of this sort of psychological science well there's one in terms of the talking um i do have another part uh, uh, later in the book where i talk about the history of psychomedical science um, which I hit, I hit them pretty hard in the book, which, <laughs> which I'm sad to do, but I'm afraid it's deserved. And I pretty much rely on Andrew Skull's 2022 book, Desperate Remedies, uh, there, where he goes through the history of, you know, medical interventions to deal with dysphorias. And he's not trying to make any, any kind of point about what's going on today, but it's, it's pretty obvious if you read it. Um, it's hard to escape. Um, and I go on for several pages of the history of the last hundred years of how they, how doctors would do what they called ovariotomies, 
for example, they would take women's healthy ovaries and remove them um, to deal with psychological problems or sterilizations or injecting with malaria. And what happens over and over again is you see these measures that did little more than decimate healthy bodies and they become mainstream in dealing with dysphorias. And then they're, they, they, each wave of, of, of drugging or digging builds on anecdotes rather than rigorous studies. The techniques make their way to younger and younger ages, ostensibly to stop the mental illness before it starts. And they usually, these in, innovations endure for several decades until the harm being visited becomes impossible to deny. And it's disproportionately visited on young women. I mean, does any of that sound familiar uh, yeah. to you? Do, do you, how long do you think it's going to be before our culture looks at gender affirming surgery the same way we look at transorbital lobotomy or things like that? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, I think it's longer than people think. Uh, what I hear often is, oh, first, the first lawsuit that comes up from a detransitioner, that's going to end it. I don't think so. There's too much. There's too much money behind mm -hmm. trans is an eight trans is a two billion dollar industry which promises to double or triple in the in the next eight years. Mm -hmm. So that's not going to just go away uh, because yeah. of a few objections. Mm -hmm. And there are all there are all sorts of ideological um, uh, structures that are in place and movements that have brought us to this point. And I think you can tell that it's it's pretty staunchly ingrained in in the culture because. You look at uh, Europe and England; uh, they've they've kind of reversed course pretty dramatically. Uh, the largest gender clinic in the world, in in at which was England's centralized service, shut down, and uh, they're you know they're kind of stopping this treatment of minors. And and after England did it, several other European countries did it, and and you'd expect, well, maybe that'll have an effect in America. Not so, you know, yeah. um, the American medical establishment and the U.S. government also soldiers on mm -hmm. under under the impression that uh, under the uh, with the position that this is what we should be doing, even for children. And so I think it's going to last longer than than some people. Yeah. Uh, but if it follows this cycle that uh, Skull describes in his book, um, It'll be uh, it'll be a few decades, and then eventually people are like, "This is this is just harmful," uh, and we don't really we never did the scientific studies to back it up, and and then it falls apart. Hopefully soon. Hopefully so, yeah. Um, it's it's not often that Europe is leading the way in good medical ethics. <laughs> usually, yeah. usually Europe is leading the way into. Um, unethical practices and we're following them by about 10 years but this sounds like it's a it's a great thing that some people are starting to wake up and say this is not good what we're doing to these young people um you know in your book there, there are a lot of footnotes well in notes in the book you can actually read through the book uh pretty quickly um just the text oh i'm glad you had that experience that. yeah i, I read through i actually quickly, i actually then, was okay, trying sorry. Uh, that's okay. I, I was trying to, initially, I was like, I don't want to make a big tome here. Mm -hmm. uh, 
for folks. Uh, I, I don't want to overwhelm them. I want them to feel like, oh, this is something I can digest and, and it will be immediately helpful. So I was going for under 100 pages. Of course, that didn't happen because I had to address some things, but it ended up pretty slim. I thought this was pretty, yeah. this is pretty approachable. You know, this wouldn't put people off. Um, but uh, thank you. I'm glad you had that experience. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. It's an it's a quick read, but you can then dig into the end notes and you have uh, a lot of material there, a lot of sources. And one thing that, that is kind of interesting is um, not only a lot of medical journal uh, type sources, but lots and lots and lots of Bible. You know, at the very end, you've got the the scripture references and it's, you know, multiple pages of scripture references that you used in the book. You you really wanted to ground it uh, in scripture. And um, uh, how do you deal with the fact, though, that when you're talking to someone who's been catechized into sort of a modern worldview, they're going to say, yes, the Bible is an ancient Bronze Age book. Uh, the people there didn't even know what transgenderism was. So how can you think the Bible has anything to say to me? Yeah. Well, uh, thank you. I I would say that um, the the reason that it's it's Bible heavy like that is is because this is really an outgrowth of this earlier work on the theology of gender that I've done, like in the first book that you you mentioned, Engendered. This is uh, sort of saying, look, let's apply our principles of 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 a theology of gender here. So it's very much not Sam's idea as far as uh, from my standpoint, I'm just trying to stay close to what the scriptures teach us about ourselves and about gender. So that's, that's the goal. But the idea I, I got this, um, I got this at a conference recently is somebody said, yes, just what you were They didn't, you know, biblical writers, and this was someone who respected the Bible too, and said mm -hmm. biblical writers didn't even have the vocabulary uh, to talk about the trans experience and uh, understand gender non-binary and, and these things. So how how can it be of use to us? Or, or doesn't that allow that this could be a valid um, kind of experience? Um, and it, it's an interesting idea, but it's entirely false, <laughs> actually. Trans uh, was alive and well in ancient Uruk in the third millennium mm. BC. Yeah. And I actually give a print a picture in the book of of Inanna, the goddess of Uruk, from a seal imprint of 2300 BC. And she was a real gender uh, explorer. She could mix gender in herself and she could change people. And I give an inscription just as old about how she can change uh, a man to a woman or a woman into a man. Um, and so you could petition her to transition, actually. Um, and the, her influence lasted uh, through the priestess who wrote about her for a thousand years. I mean, yeah. uh, paganism has always uh, had the idea in it of rejecting the gender binary. Um, and even in scripture, you can look uh, Deuteronomy 22 that comes from second millennium BC uh, that, that forbids cross-dressing for the Israelites. Obviously, if it's there, it's addressing an ancient context in which it was possible temptation. Right. And yeah. one thing I was thinking of, too, is, you know, I teach for for Veritas Press and um, and I think the questions like that, oh, how could ancient people understand this come from people who haven't read those sorts of things? 
you know, when I when I see students who have read Herodotus and they've read Suetonius and they've read you know, ancient Greek and Roman history, it's obvious that the things we're dealing with as a culture are not brand new to us that we've just invented last week. They, they've been around for millennia and the Bible does Absolutely. address them. Absolutely. Like you can't read Plato without <laughs> understanding homosexuality it was a big part of Greek, Greek, the Greek world. Right. Yeah. It just wasn't it just wasn't an identity. It was something that you might do, you know, in addition to then getting married. Um, you know, I'm thinking of Plato and Timaeus or something like that. Right. So, it's a good yeah, point. So, yeah, that's I think that is a big difference for us today as we talk about identity. Uh, they didn't in the ancient world. It was it was an action, something that you do, uh, but it doesn't define who you are. Uh, people today. Um, think of those things as this is who I am. This is my core identity as a human being, uh, which makes it slightly different to deal with, I think. Um, one one question, I final thing, we've got about five minutes left. So I'm going to give you, sort of give you the floor here um, to wrap us up and say, what message do you have for the church today, for pastors, uh, for lay people um, in the church confronting transgenderism, especially as it's only going to grow in the near future, we're going to be seeing more and more of this and having to deal with it in our churches. Well, that is insightful, Rick. Um, just the last thing you said there, and that's kind of key, that this is is not something that um, the church can just say, well, let me ignore it because it's not part of what's going on with me right now. Um, you know, there really is, it, it's there's really no way to tell at this point how many minors have been put on puberty blockers because they're just they're not studies being done about it um so it's it's uh, you can you can look at the multiplication of gender identity clinics in the united states um and the ballooning of of the services but you there isn't a there isn't anybody saying like how many of these are we doing and that's significant because uh, if somebody goes on uh, on puberty blockers, it's almost guaranteed that they'll end up on cross-sex hormones mm -hmm. and will become a sterilized individual. So uh, it's there. It's just the amount of carnage that is is coming is uh, just hard to uh, it's hard to fathom. So I I would say to the church don't miss this by trying to ignore it uh, because when people come to the end of a false hope of trying to assume the identity of the complementary agenda it they're going to end up in your church and it takes mm -hmm. a while it takes a number of years because there's always the next hope um, that you know this is going to address the real difficulty that i have and a lot of times there are comorbid conditions. We didn't talk too much about that, but um, there are other issues which the trans issue masks. And um, when they come to, you know, the next operation, well, it's going to be the next operation. When they come to the end of that, which is five or seven years later, then they they might wake up and say, what what have I done? Um, and then they'll show up in, in church, you know. So the church absolutely needs to be thinking now about how we're going to welcome them um, because God's going to work through them just like he works through any of us 
as we turn to him. And this is a very important group of people that he, I think, is going to teach the church through as they uh, are repenting and following Christ. And you're, you you got to realize uh, as a pastor or, um, you know, minister or church um, leader, just or just anybody in the church, you're not dealing with activists on the Internet. You're dealing with real live loved ones who are hurting and they need the truth and love of Jesus Christ. So I would say um, as strongly as I can, don't be an obstacle to God's work by being ignorant or uncaring um, about this. And don't think of this as like you're fighting these activists. You're just trying to address people who, who uh, like all of us, um, need, need the, the love of Christ, just as Ephesians 4. We need to be speaking the truth in love. Right. And I would say that you can do it. Uh, you don't need to be a professional. You don't need a lab coat. Um, you don't. You you are equipped to do it, um, especially if you're a parent. God has chosen you and put you in the right position uh, to be the one to walk with someone who needs your help. Right. I I think even as you're saying that, uh, Douglas Wilson has made the distinction before between apostles of the world and refugees from the world, mm-hmm. and how we we tend to have the tendency to want to treat everybody like the first category. You know, as soon as we hear that our defenses are up, we're ready to fight versus realizing this might be someone who's been hurt. And this is someone who needs pastoral care and are trying to escape from what's been done to them. Well, Sam, thank you so much for taking time here with us today. Um, Sam's book is now available on Amazon. It is across the kitchen table. If you want to hold it up, I don't have a physical copy yet, uh, but there it is. Uh, It's a really good book, and you ought to read it. So thanks for being here, Sam. Rick, it's great talking to you. Uh, Thanks for uh, including me on this uh, in this Kuiperian Kuiperian world. (laughs) 